0: So good morning, good morning and welcome to one of the last sessions at reInvent. And we want to thank you for being here. It's been a rough week, and what we're going to try to do in this session is to make it useful for you. The session is titled Creating a Landing Zone in AWS for Application Migrations. My name is Koen van der Begelaar, and I'm representing a team of AWS Solutions Architects, and we support our large multinational customers. And with me, I've got three guest speakers today. Uh, first one, being Hank from Rossum from Philips. Hank is manager platform and hosting, and he's going to provide insight on in how Philips is addressing their application migration journey and how they've been building a landing zone. Secondly, we've got Scott Macy. Scott Macy is the AWS uh, representative for Service Catalog. And then we've got John Steiner, and John Steiner is my direct colleague, and together we support our large enterprises. And when we discuss of our large enterprises, obviously one key topic that comes up every single time is the topic of application migrations. Application migrations because I want to close my data centers, I want to reduce costs, or I want to uh, increase my business agility, increase my reliability, and preferably both of these. And the topic of application migration if you put it into a program, links back to how do I create my business case? How do I create my target operating model? What am I gonna do with my partners? And actually, how am I gonna migrate to my existing environment to my AWS environment? And the AWS environment, that's the topic for today. How do I configure my AWS environment so it suits my application needs? And that's what we refer to as a landing zone. So the landing zone is a configured secure environment that suits your enterprise migration needs based on best practices, based on native AWS services, and which will allow you to start to iterate from. To start to iterate from, add your additional components, add your customization, add your third-party services. So we'd like to do in this session, we've got a lot to cover. We've got a lot to cover in 60 minutes. All the slides will be available offline. We'll be discussing a couple of solutions and we really recommend you try these things out at home. What we're gonna do is to give you an insight is what we believe is a landing zone, what we believe are the different steps you need to make in order to create this landing zone. And at the same time, Hank will give the insight in Philips, and then we have John and Scott giving further insights into the application migration journey, and our end users can use this. So how are we going to approach this? We're going to approach this, so first, a couple of considerations that we see when discussing with enterprise customers, and then quickly we move into the landing zone itself. We start with the accounts, we configure our network within our accounts to support application migrations. And before launching any services obviously we 're going to look at security we 're going to look at security first in terms of insight what 's happening in my accounts who's doing what? how do I configure my log files, etc and second part is how am I going to configure my access management? how am I going to allow my end views into my environment? Philips will describe their journey and then Scott will come on stage and provide how Service Catalog can help to enable this landing zone to empower your end users. And we'll end up with John describing the landing zone as part of the enterprise application migration journey. So let's dive right in. Let's dive right in, and let me give you some perspectives on the things that we see when discussing with enterprises. We typically have two types of conversations. One conversation is with the central IT department. And the central IT department is responsible for provisioning, monitoring, and managing my IT infrastructure, and therefore, we see a, typically a process-heavy environment where the lines of business is, request our infrastructure, get it managed. From the lines of business perspective, we see the request, we want to move quickly. We want to be agile. We want to be able to use all of the cool services. So one of the key topics we'll be discussing here is how to balance this control on one hand and the agility on one hand. And we hope we can convince you that with cloud, there's an option to combine those two. To combine those two in the sense that the central IT department is providing the handrails for the lines of business to consume Handrails in terms of providing this configured AWS environment Handrails in terms of what can we provision What are the actual Landscapes that the lines of business Can provision in the AWS environment And then from a the lines of business perspective As much self-service as possible Self-service Enable them to iterate The other thing here is What we see is the move from prescriptive to inspection controls. Prescriptive prescriptive controls is about, I'm gonna tell you what you're allowed to do. Inspection controls is, I still am gonna do that to a certain extent, but more importantly, I'm gonna monitor what's happening and respond to the issues I'm seeing. And this is where the automation comes in. So what we believe are the three key guiding principles for defining your enterprise landing zone. First one is security. Obviously, as you've heard in the past couple of days, security is job zero. But for a lending zone, there's not a really important argument to start with security in mind. And that is, it's quite difficult to add security as an afterthought. This links back to automation. And automation, in order to improve your business agility, also reduce cost. And in a couple of slides, we'll see like an example how you can use a simple way of automation to reduce your cost by automatically starting and stopping your compute instances in AWS. And then the last one is, how can end users consume this landing zone? How can end users, your developer or your application migration manager, how can they access the AWS environment in a self-service way? So let's start. The starting point in AWS is an account. An account provides you the highest level of segregation, and the good news is you can create as many accounts as you'd like. Accounts are not a scarce resource. At the same time, recommendation is start simple. Don't overdo on day one, but take into account that you want to have different accounts for cost allocation, different lines of businesses, segregation, different cost allocation. Second thing is resource ownership. You may have a central team providing central services, different account. You may have different partners providing service on top of your infrastructure, different account. You may even have different legal entities or consider selling off parts of your businesses, different accounts that would allow you, if you sell this part of the business and need to hand over your infrastructure, it's as simple as handing over your security keys and your billing details. And the last one is security and compliance isolation. Think about test dev on one hand, production on one hand, and typically in your enterprise you have data classifications in terms of your normal production workloads, your business critical loads. You may have PCI workloads, etc. So then, if you look at the account structure, the account structure starts with a payer account your account is the account which actually pays the AWS bills. Recommendation is don't use this account to provision any services in this, rather, create linked accounts under the payer accounts. And the first level of linked accounts we see are the service accounts, or central accounts, sorry. And central accounts can be used to centralize information such as your billing reports, such as your logging or your service catalog central uh, portfolios and products. And also you can use central accounts to have a read-only account for your auditing, make it easy for your auditors. And then we're gonna to move to the actual service accounts, the service account in which you're gonna launch your compute and your storage, and in which you're gonna migrate your applications into. As a starting point, we see a central account providing central services, and then we've got the accounts for test, and dev, production, and your specific version for production, business-critical workloads. And you may want to replicate this over time for your different lines of businesses. And in addition, you've got your accounts for your digital platforms, your IoT, your mobility, and all the cool stuff you're going to do on AWS. And what we see a lot of multinational accounts do, they create this overall structure per region region, as this allows them to have the segregation, and this allows them to have different legal entities responsible for paying the AWS services. I don't know if you've seen the uh, the presentation earlier this week about AWS organizations. And AWS organizations allows you to easily create accounts. You can use APIs to create accounts, but also to manage your accounts top-down. It was presented, I think, last Wednesday. It's available in limited preview. And if you're planning to launch and manage a large number of accounts, I highly recommend to look into uh, AWS organizations. The interesting thing of AWS organizations is you can apply policies top-down. So you can group your various accounts. You can group accounts for your testing, your development, and production and impose a set of policies which are moved top-down using AWS organizations. So now we've got our accounts. Another thing what we're going to do is to create our networking within those accounts. Networking within those accounts, your VPC, your virtual private cloud, your own data center within AWS. An account lives within, an, sorry, a VPC lives within an account, You can create multiple VPCs within an account, but actually why should you? If you have different VPCs, why not create different account structures? So typically what we see is one VPC per account, and you may want to deviate for that if you want to do some quick development or quick testing. A VPC has a longer lifetime. A VPC, once created, has the IP space, so your CIDR range remains allocated to your VPC. The recommendation here is choose a large VPC, typically like a slash 16, you've got lots of room to grow, and also choose an IP range which does not overlap with one of your existing or other IP ranges. So you can easily connect them afterwards. Same thing applies in subnet design, so the subnets be created within your VPC, create a limited number of subnets because it allows you maximum flexibility. Security, use access control list, and access control list can act upon the full VPC or on the subnet, and access control list is like a stateless firewalls. And in reality, we see customers use or not use them because most commonly security groups are being used. Security groups act upon the actual EC2 instances that you can group, scalable. Recommendation is use security groups as much as possible. Logging and monitoring, we'll come back to that. Log your traffic, get insight in what's happening within AWS, get insight in your overall networking. And as we're discussing application migration, you want to connect your on-premises environment to your AWS environment, you can start with a VPN connectivity, and over time, when traffic grows, move to Direct Connect. Direct Connect connects your on-premises environment to your AWS environment, it's available in one or 10 gigabit per second connections. There's partners available who can offer you slices of that. And once the direct connect is in place, what you can do, you create virtual interfaces. You create virtual interfaces that connect your on-premises environment to one of your VPCs. You can connect it to multiple VPCs. And as of everything in AWS, recommendation is use a backup. Use a backup, first of all, with VPN or cherry on the cake, use a secondary Direct Connect location. So now we've got multiple VPCs in our accounts. And we briefly touched upon the central services. So what do we see as best practices? Have a central service VPC, living within a central service account, that you can use for services that you will be making available to everybody. Think about security tooling. Think about logging. Think about authentication. And then what you're going to do is you're going to have this central VPC and you connect the surrounding VPCs using VPC peering. So now before launching any of our services within our network, let's look at security. Let's look at security from two different angles. One angle is what is actually happening Within my account, what's happening within my network, what's Happening with my users. And the second domain is the access Management. So Let's start with the insights into what's Happening in my account. So if we double click on the insight What's happening in my account, first one is i want to understand Who is doing what within aws. Who is doing what within aws and what Effect does it have on my services. And then perhaps even more importantly, What's happening into my services is that compliance with my enterprise security or compliance rules. Second thing I'd like to do is, I'd like to understand what's actually happening in my network. What is happening in my network in terms of the traffic flowing in and out? And then lastly, overall, I'm going to collect a large number of logs in order to be able to understand what is happening. And I'll show you an example in a second that's available to you in order for you to start looking into your log files and doing the initial analysis. For the first one, who's doing what in my account? Who's doing what in my account? This is where CloudTrail comes in. CloudTrail logs your API calls, and the API calls can be originating from a person on the console, can be originated from CLI, or originated from uh, direct API calls. These are locked, and remember we showed you earlier the central account of the logging. They're locked in a central uh, S3 bucket, There's a number of partner solutions available that you can use to do the analysis, and also you can use this to monitor and troubleshoot what's happening. So CloudTrail gives you insight who is doing what on my AWS services. And the second thing I'd like to understand is what was the effect of that action? What is the effect of the action of this originating API call on my AWS services? AWS config provides you insight in that. It provides you insight in the status of your actual AWS services. So it's a resource inventory, it's a change log, and also it provides you change notifications on the changes that are happening on my AWS resources. On top of config, there's config rules. And config rules is looking at these changes and is assessing those changes against your company rules. Is assessing those changes, do I have a compliant or a non-compliant change here? And if the change is non-compliant, is there any automated action I can take? As an example, I do not want my instances to be open to the wide world on port 1022 so people can SSH into my, uh, into my environment. If I detect that instance is open to the uh, the wide world, what I'm going to do is notification being sent and I'm going to remove port 22 access. Then we're looking at networking. So we we discussed the AWS environment APIs. Now let's look at the, the networking. What's happening in my network? If you enable VPC flow log, enable it on a VPC or a subnet level, And what VPC VPC flow log is going to do is going to log the metadata of your networking traffic. It's going to log the metadata of your networking traffic, the source IP address, the destination IP address, and was this packet accepted or rejected? So actually this is a good way to check if you configured your security groups in the right way or not. And you can use VPC flow logs. Logs are being centralized and you can use them to generate alarms. For example, you can create an alarm when an instance is having an excess amount of traffic on it. So now, we've discussed a number of services and we have collected and discussed a number of logs. So what can we do with all these log files? We discussed CloudTrail, we discussed VPC flow logs, and you probably have log files coming from your EC2 instances. We've recently made a solution available It's available on AWS Answers, the link on the slides. And what it allows you to do with a single click, it allows you to install this solution. And what the solution is doing, it's collecting these logs, it's transforming these logs, and it's making it available to you in Amazon Amazon Elasticsearch, and you can use it to detect any irregularities in your AWS environment. And the last topic we often see with respect to security coming up is, how am I going to manage my compute? How am I going to manage my compute in a sense, what starting point do I use? And actually, there's a variety of options here. There's a variety of options in terms of how am I going to manage my compute. First one being, you can import your own virtual machines into the AWS environment. Your own hardened images you'd like to import. Second one is, you can also use AMIs from the marketplace. We have an example over here, the CIS image, security image, that you can use and use as your starting point for your compute. Or you use any of the AMIs, which Amazon makes available, customize it to your needs, and then create your own image, and you start from that point onwards. So now we discussed the inside and what's happening in my environment by the security. Let's now move to the access management part. Let's move to the access management part and let's see how we can control who is allowed to do what in my AWS environment. And this is where identity and access management comes in. Identity and access management is a service that allows you to control who is doing what on my AWS environment. It's quite similar to what you would have in your on-premises environment in terms of all-based access. The difference may be this is extremely granular. You can have An application manager, John, and John is allowed to start and stop instances during weekdays 9 and 5 if the request is coming from my corporate IP range and if the instances are marked for development. So that's a level of granularity that you can provide using IAM and the access policies. With respect to access policies, we have a set of managed policies. Managed policies, for example, access to EC2 or access to service catalog. You can create your own policies, or we have made available a set of uh, policies for specific job functions, like a database administrator. We see a lot of enterprises do is they connect IAM, they integrate IAM with their own active directory and they use this setup in order to manage access to AWS. Let's first dive into the access policies. Let's first look at the access policies and see what are best practices here. Best practices are two things. One is least privilege, start as low as possible, and the second one is segregate duties as much as possible. Segregate duties as much as possible, on top of the slide, you see an IAM master who's allowed to create policies, and you see a second one, an IAM manager who's able to assign policies. Why would you like to do that? Well, you'd like to do that because now there's not a single person that can assign his or herself admin policy, admin rights. We're different access policies for architects, administrators, application owners, etc. And once you create these access policies and you create these roles in IAM, what you can do is you can connect your existing Active Directory to AWS. And the way it works is actually pretty simple. The way it works is you create these roles and you map AD groups to these roles. So you map AD groups to the roles in AWS, and that allows everybody who's part of the AD group to go to AWS And assume this role and perform the actions that this role is allowing him or herself to do And we're discussing here multiple accounts And I'd like to uh, show you the uh, solution we've recently made available Again on AWS Answers Which is allowing you to ease the process of federation with respect to multiple accounts It's a cross-account manager And the cross-account manager allows you to have a master account, create a set of roles, and making sure that these policies can be assigned in your accounts, which you'd like to be part of this solution. There was a session earlier this week, uh, Security three oh four. You can find it on YouTube, and it provides a deep dive and is also a demonstration. And at the same time, you see the link on this slide. You can just use the link and create create the uh, solution by yourself. So this is the first part of the presentation in terms of really an overview. Of what is my landing zone in terms of the accounts, the VPCs, and my identity and access management and my security? And I would like to give the, uh, uh, the word to Hank, who will give the, uh,
1: the view for Philips. Thank you, Kuhn. My name is Hank van Rossen. I work for uh, Philips uh, Enterprise IT. Um, I have to put some slides, I see. Yes, there we are. And I'm going to explain on how we, in fact, set up our account structures and how we work and why we do it. Um, At this moment, we have... Philips uh, has about 400 sites worldwide, and about on 100 of them, 100 plus, we still have local compute facilities or storage. That's still pretty significant. Some of them are very small, like broom closets. Some of them are very big still. So there's still a lot of service in there, about 3,500. And with the contracts on our incumbent suppliers, we still have very high cost. Also fixed fees, service management fees and all those kind of stuff. That's all in there. It's absolutely not consumable. Um, Also, the infrastructure we have over there, as we are an old company, we are 125 years old, not the service are that old uh, because we did not have them at that moment, but we, we have quite some old stuff uh, everywhere. So, and that is end of life, end of support, and on a certain moment you get stuck over there and you have a kind of situation which is not really well maintainable. And at the end there are no of incentives in the contracts, also with the incumbent providers, to clean up, to decomp, to modernize, and to make the next steps. So what we organized and what we did is we contracted a party to, in fact, really help us with the uh, cleanup, because we do it completely outsourced. So 30% of what we think of all those stuff, old stuff, will go into decommissioning, 42% into uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, and 25% will go in a local compute uh, darkroom operated. Now that's, we have a standard solution for that I think uh, last Wednesday we heard That there is also an edge device coming uh, from, uh, from uh, Is available For AWS, maybe we have to use that as well So that's maybe we have to redesign Maybe in the program, but we will look into that And then there is always a kind of leftover Which will go into the data center So we have a hybrid solution over here On how we will think That we can get the whole stuff In fact from a legacy into the new environments And why we do that? Because we really want to go into cloud, cloud first. Uh, we have to move, in fact, from, and the picture you see over there is not a Philips data center, to, uh, just to be sure. Um, we really want to go into an always on, because the services are currently not always on. They are very often uh, off. Like If you have, for example, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Netflix, and you have all those kinds of services, if they are offline, then you're in the newspaper. But we accept, and I think in many companies we accept, is that our SAP system is out for an hour or that we have a breakdown. those kind of things. And that's not acceptable anymore because you must have continuous of service. And so much more uh, always on. That's absolutely a must. We will go into self-provisioning. So Scott will tell a bit more on service catalog as well. That is what we will do, consumer-driven. And we really want to work with standard products. So no customizations anymore. Scalable resources and really pay for what we use. No fixed fees and contracts for service management, for account teams and all those kind of things. Please stop with that. So we have a completely different model. Therefore we created a landing zone. And it's a landing zone, you see here three stacks. The one on the left is the legacy. That's in fact what we do currently. That's what we do today. Then you have in the middle that's our approach for the landing zone for the legacy stuff. So that we will do a technology refresh, in fact, from our old data centers, which are uh, everywhere around the world, into AWS, and then especially on the layers of virtual machines, servers and storage, we will move that into Amazon, or in a data center in the box. But that's, in fact, what we will do. In fact, then we keep the same processes in place for application management, AMS partner stands for application maintenance and support. That's a partner who manages, in fact, our applications functionally. And then we have a managing partner who is, in fact, running the IT, running the infrastructure for AWS. That's, in fact, the column where we would like to land our uh, legacy applications. But that's not the end state. Because you will, n- nothing in the legacy, uh, in the middle column, will be optimized. We will not optimize applications. It's far too expensive. What we really want with those applications is that they move away, that they will phase out, that they decom, that they die. That's, in fact, what the purpose is over there. So we're not going to invest in that. But we have to get them off the local sites to, in fact, clean up, get rid of the local data centers, and have a quite a huge uh, business case over there, which is absolutely significant. But the end state is where we really want to have our standard new applications in and which will be uh, differently organized. There you also see that we have less partners. Our AMS partner, one of the system integrators, which is also here uh, at at, um, at, uh, at the event, they will, in fact, do more than just AMS. They will not only manage the application functionally, but also technically, and they will also manage, in fact, the infrastructure uh, based on AWS EAS. And, of course, for all three of them, we have a network provider in there. That's how we will do that. To enable that, we developed a a CRA, Cloud Reference Architecture. Here you see a very high level of the CRA. It's, in fact, based on our enterprise contract. Um, We have a root account, of course, so that's one-time use. And then what we did is we create, and that's what we keep on doing, is we create multiple payer accounts. So you have one payer account, in fact, for IT Global Services. That's the department I work for. That's where we have our um, huge systems for enterprise uh, users. But next to that, we have markets. We have about 17 markets. Uh, we have lots of business units. And the rule within Philips is that you have to pay in your own users. In fact, if you want to use some in AWS or anything in IT, you will have to get your own invoice. So the, we have separate uh, payer accounts. It will run up at the end into 30, 50 payer accounts uh, we will have globally. And for every payer account, you can spin up your linked accounts. You can do that for your backups. You can do it for your resources and, uh, and all the functions which you want. have to in there. And essential over here is that you can link in partners. So we can link in partners like partner one, partner two, or even other partners. You can have local partners uh, in, 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 a, in a market, for example, the market USA, or the market in, in the Benelux, or in Germany, or in Japan, or Australia. It's all possible. We can also have global partners who do that. And those partners create their own account where they have their management tooling in, and the only thing they do is they grant we grant them access into that account, into the resource account. And they are the only ones who have access. We don't have access, because I'm not responsible for managing those systems. They are responsible, and I want to avoid that any one of Philips has access into that account. We just can monitor, monitor for cost control. And then below that, we have functional accounts. In those functional accounts, we have set up systems like authenticator reverse proxy, in fact, for two-factor authentication, for access, security, uh, active directory is in there, uh, we have a trust uh, built in there We have a system what we call is Code one, which is our authentication Layers, and of course we have uh, Virus scanning, uh, intrusion Detection, all those kind of stuff in there And the very essential is Central logging, so we log Every activity over there, so we know Always what is happening, we will feed That in our security uh, systems As well, we have a shared central Auditing account over there And what we also want to do is a shared central intellectual property accounts because you see that we have multiple accounts of multiple partners where we work with but we want to share in fact all the scripts they have developed and shared services so that we can add up at the end in a service catalog we have to complete this with networking because you can have a great architecture you can have a great setup in aws but if you're not connected into this, then um, you cannot use it, of course. But essential here is, and that is Philips started this policy already in 2011, we have an Internet-centric policy, meaning that more than 75% of all our sites are Internet-facing. So they are all Internet-connected. So we moved away a lot from MPLS already, but we still have about 25% of all our sites on MPLS. But those 25% on MPLS is about 60% of our network costing. So that is significant. So we want to enforce more Internet-centric usage. We really want to get rid of uh, MPLS. That also means that we must have more and more applications in a cloud environment where your user traffic is mainly Internet-facing. So we have a direct connect in there for machine-to-machine traffic, for example, for uh, into our data centers, and we will also have, always have some sites on MPLS, but we really want to limit it. And, of course, we will connect also on API base with our SaaS cloud uh, where that is uh, required. So this is, of course, a very high-level setup on how we do it within Philips. Um, and this is not complete yet. We are still building it. And one of the things we are going to build over here is a service catalog. Scott will tell you more about Service Catalog.
2: Thank you, Hank. I'm Scott Macy, and I am the product manager in charge of Service Catalog. And I'll walk you through kind of what we're hearing from customers such as Hank from Phillips and others about kind of what they're looking for from that next step on the landing zone and kind of how access management for users should be controlled. Um, so, uh, there, next one. Um, so, wanted to kind of quickly walk through kind of that, what we're hearing from the organization in different levels. So, at the top of the organization, they're looking for standardization, control, visibility, all of the different components of kind of IT kind of centralization. But then from the bottom level, we're looking at kind of hearing from customers looking for kind of that self-service, that agility. They want to go fast, but they want essentially also that balance. They want that kind of uh, control, standardization, templating. Um, how do we accomplish that and what are we looking for? So essentially customers want to define those resources, they want to find those landscapes, they want to define those patterns and how software and applications are deployed. And they want to employ, uh, employ the kind of the mantra of, you know, prove once and deploy many and make sure that they get that kind of reusability of the standardization so they can take those resources and apply them across the organization and uh, kind of get those savings, and those efficiencies. And then they want that self-service of deployment but also making sure that it meets their standardization needs, meets their kind of encryption needs or their security needs and kind of give that self-assurance and that that, uh, kind of confidence. And then there's the kind of the pieces, you've got this now standardized catalog of services and templates and pieces, in addition to kind of allowing the self-service, they wanna have that automation, they wanna employ that into their development pipelines or kind of into their um, processes. So what is service catalog and how does it accomplish that? So AWS Service Catalog allows organizations to manage a private catalog of, essentially, templates, um, standardized products that they then can give users access to in Service Catalog. And then Service Catalog itself has a second proxying method to assume another role to call downstream. So those users in general don't have access to the rest of the AWS services. But the product itself has the ability to launch into those services and call EC2 and Um, do the other aspects, but only in the methods defined in that template. And then that allows organizations to essentially balance on one side that standardization, but also allow the um, customers and their internal employees to be able to come in and quickly deploy something on their own and manage that agility. So under the covers, how does it work? There we go. Um, so on the administrator interaction side, so what is a product and service catalog? A product and service catalog is a version of a CloudFormation template. So essentially they can define in that you know, kind of CloudFormation template each of the different pieces of the infrastructure that is allowed. They can hard code parameters for where they don't allow changes, and then they can parameterize other parameters to allow essentially valid value lists of allowable values and allow that essentially to become extensible. Um, so on the administrator interaction side, what does an administrator do essentially on in-service catalog? Administrator, you can have separation of roles. You have a landscape architect or a DevOps pipeline essentially to develop and author templates and those standardizations, get those certified by your central IT or um, security teams to make sure that they meet your standardization, upload those into service catalog as a product. Then you can start to group those products. Now you have a catalog of products and group those into what we call portfolios, which is a simple uh, folder construct. Typically we see from organizations that they like to group these by um, either functional units, application teams, environment levels, or all of the above. And then they're assigning the users and roles that have access to those, and those are the only role, roles that will actually be able to launch from Service Catalog in that portfolio. The other aspect is you can actually put constraints on each of these kind of portfolios to determine which uh, in one team, you might want to restrict a little bit more of the aspect, or in one environment, you want to actually restrict some of the settings and current configurations. And then the other powerful aspect of service sort of catalog is being able to tag at the portfolio or the product level to ensure that when launches come from that portfolio, they have all of those standardized tags, that governance level that the centralized team's looking for, for that you know, tagging consistency across the organization. Then the other aspect is that they can share it across accounts to grab that standardization across accounts from that central IT, from that central service catalog account. Then from the user side, cloud consumer comes in to service catalog. They can browse the products that their administrator has given them access to, but that's all they can browse. They can see those. They can then self-service deploy those. They can select the version that they want to deploy. They can then provision the product by providing the parameters and setting the allowable values that they can set. And then they, they kick off that launch on their own. And then once that deployment has happened, they can have notifications, and then they get the outputs back that were defined in the template that the administrator wants them to have access to, whether that's kind of the SSH link into the EC2 instance or other aspects. So what has kind of been happening in Service Catalog this year? So over this year, we have developed a full set of APIs that, we. Um, allow all of the features in Service Catalog's UI to be available at, via API, and we've moved our whole console onto that API set so that there's consistency between the API set and the UI layer so that no matter how you automate or aspect, all of those cloud trail logs, all of those actions, all of those supporting features are available for you to integrate into your tool sets, whether it's embedding into something along a you know, kind of an ITIL front end or whether that's something from a homegrown front end that you've built. And then there's the aspect of orchestration and automation and tooling that you can actually do to actually make your job easier and um, kind of take pieces out of the pipeline and build a DevOps pipeline for products or to automate into your um, Jenkins scripts or other types of uh, uh, kind of orchestration pipelines. And I wanted to hand it now back over to Kuhn Bigler, who's gonna kind of walk you through some of the cool things that his team is doing across accounts globally.
0: Yeah, so thank you, Scott. So, uh, I think with respect to service catalog, We see like, three key things that you can do. So The first one is, Like Scott was highlighting, user-generated products. So you probably will have people in your organization, the Fast forwarders, the developers, the people that really, Really understand AWS on a deep level. And now what they can Do, they can start to create a product. And these products now Are not confined to their own small group. What they can do is They can put these products forward they can go to a process of approval and then they can be made available in the various portfolios so in order your um, enterprise users can consume those second thing is administrative products administrative products in terms of think about reporting think about managing your portfolios and think about having people giving people access to the various portfolios but also administrative products in terms of I'd like to give somebody access for 2 hours like elevated access into the AWS environment because he or she needs to do something which does not belong to the original world the person has assumed. So that can be an administrative product, and then when the administrator launches the product, this user gets elevated access, and after a couple of hours, the elevated access can be removed automatically. And the last one is, and I want to zoom on this one a little bit, is you can think of microservices acting on your launch products. Lambda functions which act upon your launch products and which perform actions in order to reduce your cost, increase your agility. Let's take a specific example here. An example is we just recently made available an EC2 instance scheduler. Starting point is it's really easy for you to consume. You've got a link over here and a template will configure all of the services that you see on this slide and what it does, it gives you the ability to tag your instances with a schedule, and the instance attack with a schedule, and then there's a Lambda function which runs every five minutes, and based on the tag schedule, they'll perform the action to start or stop your instance. Let's take an example. We've got Becky over here. Becky wants to migrate an application, and she wants to test a three-tier application stack. So what she's going to do is, she's going to use her corporate credentials Log into AWS, log in to AWS service catalog, and then she gets this view presented. And this view is showing her portfolio and the products that are made available to her within this portfolio. Becky does not have any launch products, you see at the bottom of the slide. However, she's got a couple of products she can choose from. Quite simple products. What she's going to do is she's going to launch a three-tier application stack. What's happening right now is, she starts to launch, and as part of the launch process, the first question that Becky is being asked is, you need to provide a couple of parameters. And the parameters that Becky needs to provide are the parameters that the administrators have made available in the calculation template. So the specific parameters, we are interested over here is, the parameters at the top. The parameters at the top are, do you want to impose a schedule on your product? Do you want to impose a schedule on your product to have your instances automatically start and stop based on the schedule? Well, Becky is based in Europe. It's a development. She works eight to six, so she provides a schedule, and now the schedule is being added to the product as a tag. So once the products have been launched, you see the tags at the bottom, and the schedule over here in JSON format, the schedule between uh, Monday and Friday between eight and six. And now what's happening is the Lambda function, will pick this up and will perform these actions. When Becky comes in in early morning, eight o'clock, she gets her coffee, and the incident started. When she goes home at six o'clock, everything will be shut down automatically. So think about the cost reduction over here. So if you look at the end-to-end flow, how does this work? So again, Combining Scott's slides, we've got Becky coming in at the beginning. She launches service catalog and she browses the products. During the provisioning process, she populates the parameters that we made available to her and how the product is being launched. There's one important point I'd like to highlight here as well, which is you've got the ability to use some dynamic parameters within your service catalog. How can you do that? What you can do, you can use custom resources. You see the example in, in the middle. Inject dynamic parameters. For example, based on some parameters you define, you want to select a specific AMI that Becky can launch. Launch products, scheduling function, and think also about the other functions you can automate. Think about automated backups. Think about removal of unused EBS volumes, etc., etc. So now what I've tried to do is to give you, like, really the high-level quick view of a landing zone. And I would like to hand over to John, and he's going to put us in perspective of an application migration journey and see where we go from there. Thanks again.
3: There we go. How was everybody? Last day, almost last session, almost last presenter. (laughs) Hope you're doing well. Hope you had a great week. Uh, It it seems like it was a fantastic show. So... um, what we're gonna to try to do here, we've talked about creating a landing zone and all the fantastic aspects that can be stood up in an incredibly fast fashion, right? This is all about getting things rolling. Uh, it's, you just, you can't, you can't paint the Mona Lisa uh, in a day. And so sometimes people have to practice the Mona Lisa a few times before they finally have created it. So the the whole landing zone concept is around that, right? Get things moving, get things into the cloud, learn, get some stick time, because without it, it's all theory. And we all know what happens to a bunch of theoretical concepts, so. What we're going to go into right now are some high-level methodologies and thought processes around migrating apps um, and also operating and optimizing. Probably three items in and of themselves that could take a day's worth of lectures, uh, but we're going to put them into about 12 minutes and 35 seconds uh, and try to give you some concepts and ideas of things to do after you get these landing zones stood up and maybe even get you through some of the existing migration components you're working on. So the first thing after you have your technology built, your your um, Your infrastructure in a cloud infrastructure, in a cloud environment, is to think about rationalizing your portfolio. Right? And this, this is even one step above the, the six Rs or five Rs or 12 Rs or whatever maybe you've, you've heard recently, rehost, refactor, re re architect. Think about it at a much higher level. And we've broken it out into commodity, table stakes, and differentiators. Now, commodity is going to more than likely make up about 60% of your portfolio. These are the apps that you would commonly think about lifting and shifting. These are the apps that are going to go into in the environment that we're going to be talking about soon that is essentially an extension of your existing data center. If you're anything more than a 10 or 15-year-old enterprise, you're more than likely going to have a pile of these. When we talk about table stakes, it's about 25% of the applications, you may vary, but these are the things that we're going to do a little more to. We're going to potentially pick it up, move it into the cloud, Maybe we're going to put RDS in place instead of our existing databases. Maybe we're going to put auto-scaling in place because these are business-critical applications. Maybe we're going to have um, load balancers in place. We're probably going to drop it in two availability zones instead of just lifting and shifting into one. Um, These are very important, but they have low rate of change. right? Um, They typically tend to stay the same because they're... Of your production um, applications, and finally differentiators. And the differentiators are the cloud-native apps. These are the things that you're going to be looking at and saying, "My developers want to build the next generation of X. Right? They want to revolutionize this industry. We need to find a way to accommodate them in addition to this traditional infrastructure that we're going to have to move older applications into. Um, so how do I do all that? Right? And the an interesting perspective here is, table six and differentiators tend to make up a much higher percentage of your overall um, spend portfolio. So there is more value in them, but they also take more time, and they're a little more expensive to do. And then finally, we're going to talk about the operating model, right? Because operating models need to change as application migration changes, right? So the traditional three-tier, or I should say, red-yellow-green-light type of model for operations doesn't work so well in my next-generation application world. Probably isn't, there isn't even a need for it. So going into the migration journey itself... You know, first and foremost, we've already spoken about is, um, is rationalizing your portfolio. What is in there and how does this start to break out, right? So we gave you a high level points for rationalization. Now we begin to think about what do I rehost? What do I refactor? What do I re architect? Right. So on and so forth. What do I, um, uh, what do I get rid of? And that kind of breaks into a two-fold journey initially, at least, right? And I, we like to refer to it as either the brownfield or the greenfield journey. The brownfield journey um, is the classic lift-and-shift use case, right? Um, Some things that are very important is making sure you have business analysts looking at why this is something that should be lift and shifted or maybe why it shouldn't be moved into more of a cloud-native environment. There's absolutely a a reason for it, but make sure you have an analyst taking a look at that. Make sure you have pipeline teams working on the candidates. Um, The landing zone, we've talked about creating, and then create patterns. Once you move something, let's say a lamp stack, right, document it. Make sure it's in place. Make sure the next time someone comes upon an application that's similar, they're doing the exact same thing. Make it so that you, know, you can bring your kid in on, on bring your kid to school day and uh, they could pick up on these patterns and potentially migrate an application for you. Um, and then your existing operations are gonna stay more or less the same, right? We've just basically set up a slash 16 in the cloud. That could be a data center in my parking lot. It just happens to be you know, living in Virginia. Um, so if we're not moving much about the application, let's operate it like we did in the past. Um, because it gets into a lot of time and money and we can't expect to retrain people that have been doing, you know, knock work for the last 30 years to suddenly understand cloud native applications and how to, how to support them. So there's runbooks in place. You know, there's runbooks maybe will stay pretty similar. On the greenfield side, however, right, we're looking at these new applications that we're going to put in. We're trying to change the way our company is doing business. The landing zone is probably going to be different. It might not be a slash 16 or a slash 19, right? I might be firing off a bunch of slash 28s for these. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways I may be doing it, but the model needs to meet your business requirements. And those are probably gonna be different for the new applications you're rolling out. Doesn't make them any less or more important, um, but make sure you treat them accordingly because treating everything like a big bundle is a mistake. Right? And the operating levers are also gonna change. Uh, a couple of slides from now, we'll get into operating levers, but most certainly the way I take a look at a self-healing application, living on self-healing infrastructure that's distributed across a global footprint uh, is probably gonna be a little different than the web, I've been looking at my three-tier you know, database server I've been working with in the past. Um, and ultimately, keep in mind that the Greenfield, as Greenfield improvements are made, as you put innovation into this new world, do everything possible to roll it into the brownfield. Right? You're actually building the Greenfield of the future in Brownfield also. So the next time something comes up as a Brownfield opportunity, um, maybe there's a capability that's been rolled into it from Greenfield that now makes perfect sense. Right? So maybe we can put it into the traditional architecture. Because the end state is what you know we're referring to here as the future state. And that's gonna be a combination of both sides of it. Because it's probably gonna be a while before you get all the legacy out of your environment. It's gonna be a while before you re-architect all of your applications. This isn't for everybody, of course. Some, some folks have done it quite well. But a lot of big organizations take a little time to do that, right? And your future operating model probably needs to account for both of this. right? I'm currently referring to this as future state. We might call it orange field very orange filled, mostly orange filled. You got that reference maybe. Um, So one thing we've also learned when we're talking to customers and working with them is that waterfall does not work when it comes to migrating applications. Priorities kick in, value goes down. Um, The reason you're doing it, cost savings goes away because instead of moving something in two weeks or three weeks, I'm moving it in two months or three months and that's not how a lift and shift or a basic refactor or replatform should work. Um, so this is an example. Obviously, you've got a, pa- a program running within, uh, within your Sprint model. Um, if you take a look at your traditional um, engineers and the folks that are running the environment today in, on-premise, those are probably the folks that are going to be uh, deploying the landing zone, extending, integrating, and managing the landing zone. Right? This is central IT. These are the folks that have a vested interest in making sure that the company is safe, that nothing is being put at risk. You know, once I've got the developers taking off a million miles an hour, we have the control arm, which is internal IT, trying to say, hey, hey, let's be careful. So these are the folks that really need to take a look at what the, um, the data center of the future is going to look like, but what it needs to look like today. Um, I spoke briefly about the migration business case. If we're trying to cost out, then, heck, we should be moving applications that are going to save us the most money the fastest, right? If we're trying to innovate, we should be looking at where we're going to get the most bang, bang for the buck in an innovative um, model. It's gonna be an ongoing discovery. Um, if you're a large org, especially, you're always going to be in discovery mode. So there should always be a sprint team doing discovery, getting out in front and determining the rationalization for the three components we spoke of earlier, as well as what type of uh, migration model are gonna put in place. Pipeline generation is really important. I bet you if I say who in this room has gone through a, uh, a P2V uh, virtualization effort sometime in the last five years, probably everyone would raise their hand. And those of you that have been through large scale ones know that one of the number one problems is pipeline. Right, right, we're ready to move 50 apps this week. We have three, and uh, it slows everything down. So having a small group of team, I mean, I would argue a sprint team, I right? have a scrum not, that's doing nothing but generating pipeline and keeping that queue full. So once we get optimized and we start moving with these patterns in a repeatable manner, um, we actually have a pipeline we can keep pulling from. Because otherwise, that's again, how these things get extended over years and years instead of months. And finally, we have the Greenfield piece I was referring to earlier. It's got its own discovery. It's got its own um, environment, which I'm calling innovation. Right. So the innovation is my new platform. This is the thing that's taking advantage of things like Lambda and Kinesis and and all of the wonderful things that you've heard about released this week. Um, And the Greenfield migrations is more than likely being done by um, by application teams and folks that are building the next generation of application. So how do we how do we actually run these, right? It's important to think about the fact that when I'm doing mass migration, I'm gonna have certain outcomes, right? And those outcomes can't be skewed with the, the types of outcomes I'm gonna have when I'm doing something more advanced. So mass migration, some folks might say I hate it. Some folks might say we love it. You might have I've heard a million different opinions on it. But the point is there's probably um, an opportunity for it in your organization for the right reason. If I need to close five data centers next year, Mass migration is a darn good use case for it. Right? If I need to save a bunch of money this year, and we, pulled, we told the board of directors we need to save some money, um, mass migration is awesome. If I don't have the funding or the cash to mod- modify my operating model in the future, I should be thinking about keeping things more in a mass migration model. However, when we start thinking about replatforming and refactoring, right? there's a level of maturity involved, and our operations model starts to change. I mentioned possibly moving to things like RDS. Well, do we manage it like we do on-premise, the databases? No. Do we have to account for how we manage that in the cloud? Yes, we do. Right? So we have to start to change and evolve our operating platform. Um, and then ultimately, we get to this final stage of maturity. As mentioned, these could all happen simultaneously, but which is re-architect. And when we re-architect, that's where we get the serverless compute. That's where we disrupt the technology industry. Right? That's where we get the maximum, that we get cloud-native applications that can do everything the cloud offers to you. Um, and each one of these have their have their merit. But always keep in mind that increasing effort is gonna have increasing return. Um, and I'm gonna get much faster return on the left and I'm gonna get much longer term return on the right. These are all factors to be thinking about as you're going through a migration strategy and looking at it as a lump sum of applications or servers in your environment um, could be a mistake. So finally, just looking at the operations model itself um, and you know who does what in these different modes. So for example, uh, the one thing I want to mention is that, especially in the beginning, you don't have to have this DevOps perfect world migration day one, right? You probably want to get there, but but day one, I talked about getting some stick time. Let's get some stick time, right? Um, Your business goals may be to save money or to close data centers, and therefore automation may have to be a bit minimal. We want to have some automation where we can. We don't just have the time and money, right? And the final piece, which I was referring to earlier, is traditional support models um, can really uh, dilute the value, i.e. red, green, yellow, knock people supporting next generation applications, right? Um, but that's not to say that they can't get there, um, but their methodology, their process, their runbooks are, are mostly not gonna function. So what you start to see as you mature, as you move to this next generation of cloud, is that you're gonna have a distribution of responsibilities begin to shift. In the beginning, in a lift-and-shift model, in a mass migration, traditional ops is still doing a lot of the stuff they've been doing in the past. But as you move into replatforming and refactoring and hybrid operations and finally re-architecting, what you're also going to see is that the level of effort put in by the ops team, traditional ops team, is going to begin to diminish. And the level of responsibility by the application teams and your next-generation cloud teams is going to increase. And so these are all things to consider as you're looking at your migration journey on your landing platforms uh, because differentiating and segregating is going to be key to success and understanding the value and success that you get from these. And so finally, you know, we've spoken across the entire platform here. We've talked about landing zones, having direct connect, networking. Um, we've we've discussed uh, service console, Um and all the tools and components around it, as well as application migration from a methodology perspective and an operations and potentially optimization perspective. It's a lot of stuff to say and do in in about 59 minutes and 40 seconds, but uh, we've got through it and uh, hopefully you've learned some content from this and and enjoyed what we've uh, presented. I wanted to go through just a component of the available resources. Keep in mind these presentations will be available online. the available resources for the landing zone are in place here. There's a lot of great links. I want to call out number three, the networking one, I'm talking about PCI landing zones. Uh, honestly, you can go out to the Quick Start website, and in about 12 minutes, you can deploy a fully PCI compliant VPC with logging. You've got three buckets already created. You've got flow logs going into it. You have got CloudTrail going into it. I um, mean, it's a really great way to understand exactly what's going on behind the scenes without you doing all the light work. All these other links are actually beneficial components that will allow you to do more and more with the environment. It's really worth taking a look at that. Um, another group of resources that will be available to you, um, as I mentioned, you can go out and pretty easily click a few links and stand this stuff up. Um, and it's pretty solid, right? Uh, and you're obviously gonna want to change, you're gonna get to that orange zone I talked about, orange orange landing zone someday, but um, day one, this is a heck of a good start. And then finally, just related sessions uh, with, uh, with regards to this session. Probably not too many of those are going to attend at this point, but you may want to go back and review them uh, once you get home and take a look at the session. So, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for sticking around for an extra day to hear us talk. And have a uh, safe and healthy uh, trip home and weekend. Okay.